This podcast should not be considered as medical or legal advice. If you are looking for such advice, then do contact a professional. But please find someone that has a brain and can think critically about what's going on in the world today. This is the Collective Resistance Podcast with your hosts, Leo and Fabiola. We will be discussing why we find ourselves resisting the narratives of the common collective, as well as why the common collective resists new information. Fabiola. Hey, Leo. How are you doing this evening? I'm good. I'm, I was feeling a little uh, guilty that we haven't guilty? released. Yeah, that we haven't released our episode this week. <sighs> You're keeping the public waiting. I feel like we're well, letting them down. Man, the, the natives are restless. You can hear the yes, kids outside. Yes, yes. Well, we, we we were doing this a little bit backwards. We just had the interview, and it is a fantastic interview. It was mind-blowing. So we're going to splice that in here, um, which... Uh, uh, but I mean... Fabi did a great job finding this this person to interview. I always do. She does. She she's uh, uh, she's never shy to admit that she <laughs> finds good guests. But um, yeah, it, it is one of our longer interviews at around an hour and a half. But mm-hmm. let me tell you, if you are having a child, or uh, really even if you're well into parenthood, or if you are a grandparent, or. Uh, grandparent to be or even a person that knows people that have children or are going to have children this episode is for you yeah and it it, it starts out we're talking about um uh, uh breastfeeding a lot and and but then where it goes is just all over with parenting and health and all that it's it, it's uh it's a fantastic interview so so please uh, uh stay tuned and listen through you and- might recognize yourself like i did in this episode yeah, and 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 do also note that uh, if you want to view in video, the this version will be available on our Rumble channel, uh, where you can view uh, all of us in uh, in our video glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can check out the Collective Resistance podcast at Rumble and find that. As uh, I think this will be episode seventy nine, I believe. So uh, without further ado, should we go ahead and 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 bring Jennifer Tao on? Let's do it. All right, here we go. All right, Jennifer Tao is now here with us. I'm going to give a quick intro for her, and then we'll get underway with the interview. Jennifer Tao is an uh, I, 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 I I'm going to go over this with you, okay? So so that we can do. I'm just going to do the IBCLC. That is what we're talking about uh, primarily here today, which is the uh, International Breastfeeding. Um, board, board certified lactation consultant. Yes. And then uh, she's also an LMT, which is a licensed massage, massage therapist. And then she also has the CSOM, which is the certified specialist in oral facial myology. Great. That's fantastic. Very important. So important. We like to give a frame of reference for people. <laughs> and uh, she has practiced holistic lactation and guided parents in raising their children holistically for over 25 years. A fascination with the physiology of wellness has led her on a 30 year journey, exploring the influences on infant health and that come to define long-term human well-being. Her interests are focused in the areas of epigenetics and the microbiome, gut brain health, airway 
airway function and oral functional competency, exploring the found the profoundly far-reaching implications of this work for breastfeeding dyads. She is a writer and lecturer, offering workshops internationally on breastfeeding and epigenetics, gut health and healing, tongue tie and airway development, and holistic breastfeeding practices. She is the founder of the Holistic Lactation Institute. Jennifer is the mother of three children born at home in 1988, 92, and 98, and a granddaughter born at home in 2009. Welcome to the Collective Resistance Podcast, Jennifer. Thank you for being here. We're so excited. Yeah, we're so excited you're here. So first off, um, uh, with your journey and your intro, um, in your experience in holistic parenting, child development, through natural medicine, home births, no vaccinations, and homeschooling in your life. Um, tell us a little bit about this journey of supporting mamas and babies. Well, actually, I didn't really come from that place, right? I My background, I have an undergraduate degree in fine art, and my background was pretty um, mainstream. Um, I, in... In the early, in my early 20s, I used birth control pills, which I did not know were creating some pretty significant issues for me. I developed migraines, which I was having like five out of seven days a week. Wow. Ended up with a, a neurologist, put on medication, some pretty powerful drugs, like going down that allopathic pathway of medicating the symptoms rather than solving the problems. And I was not very knowledgeable. Um, and then it, it, from 23 to 26, so for three years, I was having really significant pain every month with not during my cycle, not during my periods, but with ovulation. I was misdiagnosed, mistreated. I don't mean mistreated as in badly treated. I mean inappropriate treatment, um, just throwing things at me because no one could figure it out. Finally, um, I saw a doctor who did uh, a diagnostic laparoscopy and it was a turning point in my life. Um, I remember to this day being in the recovery room because I was under general anesthesia and a baby was crying and I kept saying, what's wrong with that baby? Someone help that baby. <laughs> and um, that baby was talking to me and the doctor coming in and telling me, I'll never forget his words. If I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet you'd ever be able to get pregnant. Very what? cold, very detached. I'll never, you don't forget those kind of words. Like that's why healthcare providers are supposed to be human. And, <laughs> So I went home that day and I happened to read an article about homeopathy that very day on a magazine that was in my mailbox that day. Wow. And I called the National Center for Homeopathy and I said, does somebody do this in Connecticut? I, I live in Connecticut and I got four names. Now I probably get like 400, but yes. I got four names. The first person I called, I just didn't resonate. The second person I called, William Shevin, answered the phone. He's a medical doctor. And he said, it doesn't really matter what you have. That's not how homeopathy works. I made an appointment. Um, he treated me and I never, I've taken one antibiotic once since then. And that was 36 years ago. Um, and I just, I stopped the drugs immediately when I met him. And over the next six months, the pain completely resolved. And um, about one year later, I conceived my first child in two months. Wow. And so it just completely changed my pair. It was like, it was literally like jumping the tracks, like the whole paradigm shifted. And what was so powerful, so much more powerful than, than the care that I got from him, which he was my doctor for 35 years. He retired last year, just an amazing person. 
um, when I got pregnant, I still went to the uh, to the OB because I didn't know who else to see. And I sat there with my husband and I had taken a pregnancy test and I said that I was pregnant and he looked at me and said, you can't be. <laughs> and I said, well, I mean, I took a pregnancy test and he said, well, did you do the surgery? Because he had told me I had to either do surgery or these drugs because my I had very severely scarred ovaries. He couldn't even follow one of my fallopian tubes. I mean, I had severe endometriosis. Wow. And he said, did you do surgery? Did you take the drugs with someone else? And I said, no, I saw a homeopath. He looked right at me and said, that doesn't work. Talk about <laughs> denying a person's lived experience, right? And I had done nothing else except eliminate dairy from my diet. That was the only other thing I did. And so... I walked out, I remember turning to my husband and saying, I can't have a baby in the hospital. I didn't know there was such a thing as home birth. I just knew I couldn't do that. And so... And you, you said you were, you were how old though at this time? I was 26. 26. 27, okay. 27 at that point. 26 when I was diagnosed, 27 when I conceived Alexander. And so I called my homeopath and said, what do I do? And he gave me the name of a midwife. And so we had all our babies at home. And that just kind of, it was just like it tapped you in. Like there's, this, it's almost like, you know, like this underground network you didn't know was there. Yes. People were actually like taking care of each other in a whole other way that was respectful. And it was just a whole different way of thinking. So once I went down that pathway, I always used the word recognition, like things would present and I would feel like I recognized them. Um, and what was really powerful about the homeopathy as well is that it 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 addresses you as a human on all your levels, mm -hmm. right? And so when I, I had never planned to have children. In fact, when my husband and I got married, we agreed because I didn't want to have children that he was okay with that. And when I was diagnosed with endometriosis and told I couldn't have children, but I heard this baby crying, like I had all these emotions. And when I went to see the homeopath, I realized because homeopathy brings up a whole other way of looking at your life that I didn't really not want to have children. I just didn't want to be my mother. <laughs> and so that was leading me to believe, to realize that, and she was a very kind person, but she wasn't prepared to be a mother. And so I couldn't, I didn't like learned nothing from her about any way that I would want to be a parent. But then I thought, well, wait, can't I like learn it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that's when I went down the path of reading books like the continuum concept and our babies ourselves and discovering how humans care for one another and care for our young. And so whole birth, you know, co-sleeping, attachment parenting, it just all felt normal. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that's where I started, but then leading to helping mothers and babies. I mean, I was working as an art director and photographer, like I wasn't you know, I wasn't thinking about helping anyone else have, you know, have a different experience. But then I became a volunteer La Leche League leader when my son was uh, like almost two. And I started volunteering at a WIC office. And I did this for a couple of years. And what I found is that we would have huge numbers of mothers coming to this office. And I would talk about breastfeeding and they would get excited to breastfeed and they'd see me nursing. And then they would go to the hospital and have their babies and come back at six weeks formula feeding. Oh. So I felt like I am a part of the problem right now. I am not a part of the solution because to encourage someone to do something that they have no resources to do 
it's like it's so it's so false it's mm-hmm. not a support it's it's may, it might make me feel good but it sure isn't helping them mm-hmm. and it and it's so I, I just thought I can't function that way I can't do that so I was a very naive person in a lot of ways. <laughs> I thought I'm just gonna find a way to help so I wrote a grant that literally I got like right away wow. in hindsight I'm amazed that that happened so I wrote a grant for a breastfeeding peer counseling program at Hartford Hospital and this was in, my daughter had just been born and she was a week old when I had the first meeting. Wow. She was my second baby. <laughs> and so it took us like a year to kind of pull everything together and train the first peer counselors and that sort of thing. Um, and so right before she was probably like, maybe she was like seven or eight months old, we trained the first group of peer counselors. And because I never left my children, both when I was working and advertising, my husband and I had formed our own company so we didn't need to do that and so I brought her to work with me all the peer counselors could bring their children um it was also the first program that ever paid the peer counselors peer counselors had never been paid up until then and that was completely unacceptable to me Mm -hmm. and I paid them well above minimum wage which was also like ridiculous minimum wage like who can live on that (laughs) and so I yeah so we embedded the program in the hospital so peer counselors saw every mother within our program every single day except Thanksgiving and Christmas um and so we the average age of weaning in that hospital at that time or at that clinic through that clinic was six weeks and at the end of the year, it was four months, which is amazing. Wow, that's fantastic. And so, yeah, but what, but the consequence of it, because I don't want it to sound like all rainbows and unicorns, we trained 40 peer counselors, many of whom never worked, but my thought was, so what? We've just educated the community, right? Mm-hmm. But the hospital didn't really like what we were doing. Oh. Like they wanted the program because it looked good on paper and the results were good and the numbers were good and the statistics were good and it made them look good. But what happens when you run a program like this is you develop a lot of um, camaraderie, number one. Mm-hmm. People start to connect and you develop community and community is where people gain power, right? Mm-hmm. And people gain confidence. And women began to gain a lot of confidence, both the peer counselors and the mothers, and started to refuse inappropriate care. Like, you need to have your depot shot before you leave the hospital, or you can't take your baby home right. kind of bullshit. Right. And so, <laughs> um, so peer counselors started to have home births. They started to homeschool their kids. They started to refuse interventions. I uh, had a doula training for them. Like, there was a lot of empowerment happening, and that was in real conflict with an institution. Well, and I was thinking um, when you were saying that you probably couldn't get a program like couldn't get a grant for a program like that nowadays. Well, you could get a grant for what it was in writing, but okay. how it actually manifested in real life was a whole other thing. And so ultimately after three and a half, four years and two miscarriages where I felt like the stress of being in that environment, I'd never have another baby. Um, I left, um, and but it was an incredible experience we helped a thousand mothers and we like throughout their entire breastfeeding journey for as long as we worked there and we helped a thousand other mothers so i mean it was well worth it um and especially because 25 percent of our population were teen mothers so to have that to have that kind of confidence in a young mother is such an incredible gift yeah um and we trained teen mothers as peer counselors which was really powerful so I, I have no regrets, but if I hadn't left, I might never have had Leo. 
Um, yeah. Great name. So, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, so I then, at the last year I was there, I sat the IBCLC exam and became a lactation consultant. And then um, I went into private practice when he was, you know, a few months old. So, so that's kind of how I got to helping mothers was because I kind of had to sit back and self-reflect and think, you know, why, what are you doing here? Are you really making a difference or are you just kind of like massaging your own, mm-hmm. you know, sense of well-being? So, yeah, that's remarkable. So you were talking about your experience back then when your children were little. So what was that like birthing and raising children back, you know, 30 years ago? In the dark ages? Like, you know, <laughs> yes. I just remember my kids used to Was there indoor plumbing? plumbing? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, in fact, my daughter was born in a cattle trough. There were no birthing shops at the time. And so we had this cattle trough that traveled through the community. And it was so much better than those birthing tubs because cattle troughs are very hard and okay. so when you are birthing and you're kind of... You can get the traction, around, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those birthing tubs are awful. I tried a birthing tub with Leo and I was out of that. But that's more <laughs> in the cattle trough. So um, so what was it like? You know what I think is really different is that because there wasn't... I mean, there really was the internet. Yes. <laughs> no. So, because there wasn't social media there was so much more community. Like if you wanted support, you had to be in a room with other people, right? Mm-hmm. So like I went to La Leche League meetings. I ran a lot of La Leche League meetings. I started one in the Hartford in the inner city. Um, so people had to connect with other people and a lot of people became friends through those kind of communities, right? Um, and so, and also that's kind of where you got often connected with other ideas like homeschooling, mm-hmm. right? So. I never started homeschooling my children. I just never stopped homeschooling my children. <laughs> That's and awesome. So, right? And so they, yeah. So so you kind of got those kind of connections. And there was a lot more, I believe, freedom to feel confident. Today, every single decision a mother makes is checked by some stranger on yeah. social media. It's really, I can't imagine. I will never forget the very first time I took my son, my first child to a mall. And I, this was before I like realized that, I mean, we never built our crib, but I still like thought you'd go in a mall to a stroller <laughs> with a stroller before I realized that, no, you wear your kids for like 15 years, right. but not all, not the, not 15 years, one child. Over right, 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 right. But I, I had him in a stroller and he was like, you know, six weeks old or something. And somebody made a comment about how uncomfortable he looked. He is 34 years old and I have not forgotten that. Wow. Like it is really harmful for people to be constantly criticizing mothers. Oh yeah. And that's what happens on social media. And when people do it in person, there's a difference because you have to look at that person and you have to see that person. Mm -hmm. And so I think it happens a lot less, but on social media, it happens a lot. And mothers are dodging the bullet of that kind of criticism all Mm -hmm. the time. And I can just give you an example. My son, my oldest son, Alexander, when he was five and a half, we discovered he has a congenital birth defect. He has no portal vein. And we discovered that because he was hit a tummy bug and he was nauseous and he woke up in the middle of the night vomiting. I couldn't go to bed. I didn't know why I couldn't go to bed. It was three o'clock and I was just like, I had nothing to do, but I couldn't go to bed. 
and he woke up and he was vomiting blood everywhere. So he, because he had no portal vein, he had developed esophageal varices. So all of the blood had backed up into his esophagus, the oh blood vessels gosh. of his esophagus, and they were so enlarged that they ruptured with the vomiting. Wow. And so emergency room, blood transfusions, pick you. And because I worked there, fortunately, I had a little bit of leeway. So we never left him. He was the only child that the parents were with. My daughter was two. I was nursing her. I stayed. She stayed with us, and we slept on the floor of a, of the the room where the kids play, in sleeping bags, and we stayed with him. And they saved his life. I mean, this is what allopathic medicine does well. They yeah. saved his life. But they then wanted him to wear a medic alert bracelet, have scoping every three to six months, and take beta blockers. I went to the medical library and copied like this much information on beta blockers and on his condition. Nothing could convince me it made any sense whatsoever. Wow. So I looked at this little kid, five and a half years old, and I said, do you want to live? And he said, yes. And I said, then you picked me to be your mother. If you were supposed to go down this route, you would have picked a different mother. So that made no sense to me. I did none of it. I'm not putting a bracelet on your arm, which tells you you're sick for the rest of your life, yeah. because that is what you will be. I am not allowing someone to scope you every three to six months, and I am not putting you on beta blockers. Wow. And so I left the hospital doing none of those things. We went once a year to the gastroenterologist for to have him checked. And when he was 10, the gastroenterologist said to me, you know, we don't use beta blockers anymore. You were right to do what you did. Whoa! <laughs> The science was not settled. But I can, there you go. But I can tell you today that I would have been a DCF referral. Oh, right, right. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is the difference in what mothers could, right? I was never afraid to make choices for my children. I never registered my kids with a school. I never, like, we just, I just unschooled them. I never asked anyone's permission to make the best health choices for my children. And Alexander, they told him, they told me that he couldn't do sports because his spleen is very enlarged. And so he would be, it would be unsafe. But this was a kid who couldn't stop moving. Right. So started Tai Chi when he was seven years old. And we can, we moved up to Wushu, Chinese martial arts, Kung Fu when he was nine. And he's a master archer and he teaches Wushu today. He's 34 years old. He was a gymnast. He did parkour. I was like, I'm not limiting his life in this way. Mm -hmm. Right. So those are not, so what I see today are parents so fearful of the system and I'm not saying they're wrong because mm -hmm. that's how oppressive this is in terms of parenting. Mm -hmm. Like our, no one loves a child more than a parent. Yeah. yeah. No one is going to make a better decision for a child than a parent, but that is not how our society now treats parents. So I understand the fear that is imposed on parents today. They're afraid to not get an ultrasound. I never had an ultrasound with any of my pregnancies. They're afraid not to have ultrasounds. They're afraid not to have drugs. They're afraid to say no when someone wants to induce them. They're afraid to make, you know, health choices outside of the mainstream. It's it's a very and I feel like that's a large part of the the anxiety I see in parents too today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that that that's a big difference from what over the last three decades is there's a difference in terms of our, our ability to really make good choices and feel confident in our choices or make mistakes, but be able to be confident that we have the right to make mistakes mm -hmm. and move forward for, with those. So, so I think that's a big difference. 
Do you think this came, did you see a turning point, I guess, where things got really medicalized? Or did you yeah, see, was yes. it from parents no. or is it from the system? Was it both? Well, you know, when I look back at around birth, right? When I look back at, because when I was having my babies, home birth was sort of coming into its own again, right? There's a little bit of resurgence and there was a resurgence in breastfeeding and breastfeeding was still in the hospital. They were still handing out, you know, two minutes on one side, three minutes the next time. They were still handing out these ridiculous kinds of things in the late eighties, early nineties. And so we were still stuck in that place, right? Mm -hmm. However, you could go to a La Leche League meeting and you could get accurate information and you could just not do that, mm -hmm. right? So there was an ability to just, that's ridiculous. This makes sense. Make this choice, right? Yeah. It's much, much more confusing right now. So part of what happened, I think, is that we institutionalized the um, education. So all of a sudden childbirth classes went into the hospital. Oh. So in the 70s and 80s, childbirth classes were all in homes. They were Bradley classes, they were Lamaze classes, whatever, but they were independent. So they were empowering because you weren't being spoon fed by the hospital to follow to be a good patient. Mm -hmm. yeah. But once they went into the hospitals, now it was spoon feeding to be a good patient. Okay. Breastfeeding, the same thing has happened with breastfeeding. Breastfeeding classes went into the hospital. So it went from like a Lalechili grassroots kind of thing. Hospitals now teach breastfeeding classes. And there there's a lot of restrictions on what you can say. Mm -hmm. Now doulas are being registered by hospitals. So doulas who are supposed to be the advocates for mothers. If a hospital strikes you off their registry, what does that mean about your business? So who are you an advocate for if you have to right. register? Right. Right. Because you're, so, you're saying if you're registered, like with a doula, they, they won't let a non-registered doula in the hospital? Oh, wow. wow. That's, right. That's right. And so we have more. So every time something comes up as a way to support empowerment, as a way to support free choice, the hospitals just take it over. So it becomes part of the institution. And so that's what I've seen happen is the institutionalization of education, right? And so it doesn't become education anymore. It becomes, uh, well, the same with homeschooling in my mind. It's become spoon feeding, right? right. It's part of the indoctrination school. program, yeah. It's very much a part. And along with that, there was the Breast is Best campaign, which came about in the 90s, mm -hmm. which people really embraced in the world of lactation. I was working at Hartford Hospital and they tried to bring that program into the hospital when I was running the peer counseling program, but I had a background in advertising and I said, this will sell formula. This will not sell breastfeeding. Really? Because you can't make something best because once you make something best, you make it the pinnacle, you make it the top, no one feels like they can achieve that. Who's perfect? Uh, okay, okay. So you make it very inaccessible. So formula companies were pushing breast is best and people on just embraced it thinking it made so much sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was a big part of, because now it also gives you something to resist. Breast is best. Well, no, it's not. What do yeah. you mean it's best? And so what do we have now? We have fed is best, which is absurd, but that's <laughs> the reaction that we have is fed is best. And, <laughs> and people love that now. Parents love that. Fed is best. And so that's like, it's absurd. I mean, it's fed almost is like, I feel like when, so when I, had my first child. I, everybody around me was basically, you know, breastfeeding and formula feeding or doing both, right? And How old is your first child? He's 14. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that long ago, really. And I remember I had him in the hospital 
because uh, our chiropractor at the time told me she had four children at home. She had them at home. And I just had no like contact, no experience actually where I come from, Brazil. Uh, home births are illegal. So you can't have your baby at home. So staring rate is about fifty percent. Yeah, it's not. They schedule. They're all scheduled. Yeah, there, they're. Yeah. All, I think it's more than fifty percent. Yeah, I, I thought it was more like. 80%. I would there is like ninety percent or something. Everybody schedules to have their babies. It's just just normal. So I had no concept, and I just thought like you're a little cuckoo. So had got a great doula at the time and got a great birthing class outside the hospital. Learned some stuff, but still. Um, didn't learn anything about what happens after you have the baby. It's all about preparing for labor right. and how horrible it is. Like you've seen all the movies, everybody's screaming and so forth. So I told myself mentally, I had like zero support. So I was just lucky that it just came natural to me and it just happened. I, I learned a lot later league after I had my first child. So for you to see how, how, but uh, inverted I was, I guess, with this whole thing. And I told myself, I'm going to give myself two weeks because apparently everybody around me is having trouble breastfeeding. So why would I be able to breastfeed, right? right. But if it hurts, whatever, I'm going to give myself two weeks. Just put that in my head, two weeks and see how that goes. And and I guess my child had some tongue issues, which I found out when he was, what, seven or eight because yeah, yeah. you know nobody knew N no wonder why it hurt so much the first two weeks and i then i guess my my breast just got used to it uh no support of the hospital like zero no lactation consultant nothing but it was basically such an empowering experience because i really felt like i wouldn't be able to keep my baby healthy and have him grow. I mean, I that was just like, that's impossible. Can I do that? And I did that. And it was such an empowerful, ex empowering experience. But I, I'm sure for most mothers that don't have any support, and I hear that all the time, they no, just... I'm sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go for it. What I was going to say is support is really critical. And mothers have always been supported by extended family, right? Mm -hmm. And and we don't have that in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's like they're a little isolated and it's even worse during COVID, but people are isolated from that support and that extended family. And even if like a grandmother can come and help, often they're working themselves. They can come for a week or two, maybe not yeah. like four months or something like that. But there's more than the lack of support. There's the lack of cultural norm, right? Mm -hmm. So I use this analogy. If you are 16 years old, and you're like chomping at the bit to get your driver's license, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, I wanna I wanna take driver's ed. Can you take me out to drive? You know, I mean I did this with three kids. I I know what it's <laughs> like. And so what happens is your kid sits behind the wheel for the very first time. They know how to adjust their mirrors, they know where the brake is, they know where the uh, the clutch if it's a standard they know how to how to turn the steering wheel, although they always overturn it. <laughs> they know where everything is in a car because they've driven in a car been driven in a car for 16 years mm -hmm. right right so as much as they have to learn the nuances of driving there's no question in their mind that they are going to learn to drive right after. but if you let's say drove a donkey cart <laughs> until you were 16 years old <laughs> and someone put you behind the wheel of a car you wouldn't know 
anything. You mm-hmm. wouldn't know about the mirrors. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know where anything was. Mm-hmm. You would be out of your element entirely. Yeah. That's what yeah. it's like for women trying to breastfeed in our culture. That is a great analogy. I've never heard that before. That is a fantastic analogy. My analogy. <laughs> <laughs> it makes so much sense to me, right? And this is what we do. So all the support in the world is still not going to give that person this kind of confidence going into it. Right. Like you didn't you didn't really have it. You wanted it, but you didn't totally believe that you were going to no. do it. Right? But that 16-year-old kid who's been in a car from birth is 100% certain they can do it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's missing far more than the support, which is very important. I'm not I'm not underestimating it. But mm-hmm. what we do is we try to come in and think support is going to solve all the problems, mm-hmm. but you can't fix that underlying cultural absence, mm-hmm. right? That's So when you said, was there a turning point? Was there a pivot? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember about maybe six or seven in my, God, I don't know if I remember really when, <laughs> there was this uh, formula commercial that talked about women not, you know, being, not sort of being at each other over feeding, that all kinds of feeding was fine. Mm-hmm. I don't. All, all kinds of choices are legitimate. Everyone has the right to choose how they're going to feed their children. Mm-hmm. Everyone does. But that's not the same as what these commercials were doing because they were creating the idea of mommy wars. They created the whole idea. And then they, then they used their creation to try to beat up breastfeeding. Right. Mm -hmm. So because only breastfeeding was the problem, breastfeeding is like beating up on people. And that was a huge pivotal turn because people don't understand when they're being marketed to. Right. It resonates in their heart in some way because I don't want to feel bad. Of course, none of us do. And so it resonates for them and they don't understand they've just been marketed to. They think that this like is some kind of comfort and some kind of rational way to think about things. So I think that that is a big part of the problem is that the formula companies really, really became aggressive with pushing this concept that there was a battle between parents Mm -hmm. and then, right. And so they also really pushed the normalization of um, mixed feeding as opposed Mm -hmm. to exclusive breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. So even though we've seen an increase in, initiation of breastfeeding, we've seen a decrease in exclusivity and duration of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So lots of mothers start. So think about it this way, right? I did the math on cesareans quite some time ago when the rate was like 30 something percent in the United States. Mm-hmm. So if you use the World Health Organization uh, rate of like 10 to 15 percent, but I actually use more of a midwifery rate of like 10 or 12 or something like that. So using that number and the number that actually are, what that means is that 80% of cesareans are unnecessary. That means that it's likely your cesarean was unnecessary. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to embrace that idea, right? Most women choose to breastfeed their babies in the United States, right? The the initiation rate is probably 80-something percent. It's pretty high. Yeah, that's amazing. Most women do not meet whatever goals they have, whether it's six months or four months or a year, most women do not meet that goal. And I don't, and I use the word fail, not as the parent failing, but just a failure to achieve an end goal, right? Mm -hmm. The majority of women fail to meet their own goals. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Most way you deal with that is you try to, you see it as 
well, number one, that's it's it makes breastfeeding difficult. It's just because breastfeeding is so hard. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, feeding mammals feed their young. It's not meant to be hard to feed. Right. Breast never meant to be difficult, to be hard, to be painful. Mm-hmm. So why is it? It's only culturally hard, culturally painful, but it's not physiologically so. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's part of the problem is that the majority of women throughout, you know, going past everybody having a baby today, everybody historically who's had a baby in the last like 100 years, yeah. especially the last 50 years, has failed to meet their breastfeeding goals. And mm-hmm. so how, what does that say about what we think about breastfeeding mm-hmm. and how we talk about it? Mm-hmm. Right. And so the, so there's far more mythology about breastfeeding out there on social media, in books, everywhere than there, than there are facts. And most yeah. people are on mythology. So how do you fix that? I don't know the answer to that. It's pretty frustrating. So and I the- think it's nice to define because now, as you said, we're getting all this information. Like when I had my third child, okay, I had her home. I had a midwife. I didn't go to a hospital. I didn't register anywhere. I still got freaking formula cans in my mailbox. I'm like, wow, how in the world? <laughs> how in the world? They know where I live and they know that I'm pregnant. They're, I don't they're know. listening on the phone. <laughs> I don't know. So, like, for my, let's say, for my generation, I don't know. I have no context to know what was breastfeed, breastfeeding meant to be like back then, because it's so medicalized now, right? You have a baby in the so hospital. Back then would be, you know, before the 1930s, 1940s, like mm-hmm. back okay. then would mean then, right? Back, back because, then. Okay. We're going right. way back. Because, well, because we, Right. Because you need to kind of consider a period where there would be far less opportunity to do anything other than breastfeeding. So when something is just what there is, it's managed in a very different way. Like we've made breastfeeding an event. We've made it that you have to have like the whole idea of like a nursing corner where you sit down to breastfeed. Like, you know, that it's like, so you'll see people talking about how women shouldn't nurse in public. It's a, it's a intimate event. I'm like, right. oh my God. And a lot of women <laughs> buy into this. So I didn't buy into yes. this. But I think it's because I was from another country and my mom is a biologist. She's very holistic in nature. And I figure, and I told my husband, I said, hey, if my kid is hungry and we're in the park, I'm going to feed my child. I don't care who's offended about it. But I think most people are just let their babies cry or give them a bottle. We've also normalized pumping to such a degree that people will say, why can't she pump it and put it in a bottle? Right. Like, it's such a bizarre concept. If I mean, I exclusively nursed my kids. They never had bottles. Why would I suddenly decide to go and pump my breast and stick a bottle in my kid's mouth? Who nurses? Why would I do that? Like, it's such a bizarre idea that a mother should have to do that. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what, you know, so the idea that it's breastfeeding is kind of, it's very special in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, it, I remember when I was pregnant with Leo, the thing I was most looking forward to was nursing again. I had been mm-hmm. a year since I had weaned my daughter and I just wanted to nurse again because I love nursing, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, and not everyone does, mm-hmm. but the point I'm making is that, but I did, I never sat down barely and nursed him. I had two kids I was homeschooling. They were going everywhere. I just put that kid in a carrier mm-hmm. and I don't know what he nursed. <laughs> like it wasn't like a special event. I remember one time we were at a folk festival and I'm sitting down on the ground 
And all of a sudden, I look up at my husband and my other kids. I go, where's Leo? And they all look at me like I'm insane. He had climbed into my lap and latched on and nursed to sleep. I didn't even notice. So the point I'm making is that breastfeeding, when we treat it like something like that, Mm -hmm. we're less likely to just incorporate it into our lives. Mm -hmm. You know? So that's a part of the problem, too. Yeah. So it had to be incorporated into your life because that's how you fed a kid. Right. Mm-hmm. But one of the things to think about too, Janine Pavardi Baker was a midwife who died in 2005. And she was an amazing woman. She was a yoga instructor, a midwife, an herbalist, an astrologist. Um, and she was pregnant with her first children, twins, walked into a hospital to have them, did not like the way she was treated, and walked out and had them at home. Wow. wow. <laughs> and then had the rest of her children at home and became a midwife. That takes some huge guys today yes and so she she um said to me said i was at a course a women's herbal conference once and she said we are homo relatus we relate that is what humans do and i've never forgotten that because we forget that breastfeeding isn't about feeding breastfeeding is about relationship Mm -hmm. right it's the relationship we have with another human being Mm -hmm. and in that relationship their ability to relate grows evolves our children Mm -hmm. so we've forgotten that in our culture Mm -hmm. we have we treat it like a feeding choice is it a bottle or is it a breast Mm -hmm. but it's not it's a is it a bottle being fed by a human or is it a human holding you in their arms feeding you at the breast i mean they are not the same Mm -hmm. and it's and i i feel like when we make choices we ought to be making informed choices, right? It's okay to make that other choice, but that is what that other choice is. It doesn't mean you're not holding your baby when you feed a bottle, of course, but it is physiologically a different choice. It is epigenetically a different choice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you nurse a baby and there's backwash into your nipple that tells your breasts what your baby needs. I know. That's not happening on a bottle. There's a reality of how breastfeeding works that is different from the way bottle feeding works, right? So, but we try to downplay that and we try to minimize that to make them equal, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're not equal. It's, a, it's, so it's really a great point you make about, you know, the choice is fine, but if you're not working from that place of, of knowledge to understand what the, what you're, what you're choosing, then you're not really making a choice. Yeah. Right. And that, yes. And that kind of comes back to the way that we communicate with parents, right? And the way we sort of solve problems, we solve them with tools rather than touch. We solve them with tools rather than communication, Mm -hmm. right? And so we don't treat pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding as the sort of innate rites of passage that they are, as the way that they bring forward who we are as a human being and how we want to be in the world. We don't have those conversations. Mm-hmm. We just make it about the, the sort of so, sort of science, the unsettled science. We make it about, you know, medication. We make it about fear. It's mm-hmm. primarily about fear, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's about bullying. Women are bullied. Mm-hmm. Women are, you know, assaulted and when they speak up they're told just be grateful you have a healthy baby like women's experiences are denied sort of like that ob who Mm -hmm. denied that i could be pregnant (laughs) it's very similar to that and it's become entrenched that's the way we do things and so when women confront you know all of the normal emotions and rites of passage that come from pregnancy and becoming a mother we don't have those conversations Mm -hmm. and we don't get to grow and change 
I can just give you one another little experience with Janine. My first two births were at home, but they were really long and really hard and really painful. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had to be a warrior to give birth. And so I I, I paid Janine for a session. She's an amazing woman. And we went out on a, on a lake together, my daughter, her daughter, and us in a canoe. And she said, how does it serve you to continue to be a warrior giving birth? Wow. What's your story that is served by that? Mm-hmm. My father's first wife died a month after giving birth. Wow. My sister's daughter, my sister's daughter was stillbirth. There was a history in our family that birth was terrifying and people died. Mm-hmm. So the way that I approached that was I was going to be a warrior in the face of that. When I had that conversation, it fell away. Wow. And I approached my next pregnancy by every single day when I was in the shower. I used something called Lighten Up that had been used for women, for, for people for weight loss. And I just I just um, used it for breastfeed, for birth, for pregnancy. Okay. As I washed any part of my body, I thanked that part of my body and loved that part of my body as it related to growing a baby. I love my arms for encircling my children. I love my umbilical cord for connecting me to, or my navel for connecting me to my mother and all women throughout the millennia. I did it every single day for like five minutes. And I balanced the chakras every single day. And when I was about 36 weeks pregnant, I hear clear as day in my head, I trust you to give birth, trust me to be born. And we had the easiest labor and the easiest delivery. That is so beautiful, so touching. Those kinds of conversations don't get to be had. Women don't get to have those feelings and those kinds of connections. And people don't encourage those kinds of ways of connecting with their babies or themselves or their own fears or their own experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really missing around birth and breastfeeding. So, yeah, I think it's, we've come so far and we've so disconnected. And if we we're disconnected so from ourselves, we're going to disconnect from our children. Yes. And we're going to embrace the, the, the things that further disconnect us from our children, you know, so we swaddle them. We don't. Oh, yes. I wanted to hear about that so going from birth now your baby is born so that's where I felt completely unprepared okay what do I do now have this baby nobody prepared me for this and that is this romanticizing of a baby registry and the perfect stroller and the perfect car seat and all these mothers carrying those heavy as hell car seats and how their baby and then the the perfect baby is the baby that stays in the car seat and falls asleep and doesn't complain and that was not my experience so when i got (laughs) so when i went into baby wearing like that was so foreign to me because i'm like I've never seen anybody around me do that. And I couldn't do it with my first child. And then come my second child, my third child. I'm like, how in the world did I survive putting my first child in this car seat and expecting that he would sit there and be quiet? So once car seats could pop out of the cars, because mine didn't. Okay. Once car seats, at least not my first kids. Those are 10 years between the first and the third. Once car seats could pop out of cars, people started carrying their babies in car seats. And that was a big turning point away from connection yeah. because 
right? So I would have to take my babies out of the car and I would lift them up and put them in the carrier and then I would carry them. Mm-hmm. But people now, it is amazing to me that people lug these car seats around. They're huge. They don't think twice. Yes. And they don't think, but put your baby on your body. It's so simple. Yes. And yet they don't do that. They drag them around in the car seats. And, and just because it's what's seen, people don't ask questions about it. But what you said is when a baby's born, we're unprepared, right? Because everything is about birth. Yes, everything is about birth. Even though women are also unprepared for birth, they're prepared to be told what to do, but they're right. not really prepared for birth. But they are unprepared for a baby who needs to nurse immediately, right? You can't read a book before the baby nurses once they're born. (laughs) But the thing about babies is that they are reflexively prepared to nurse. Reflexes come online as babies are being born. They go through the, the birth canal and all of their reflexes guide them through the birth canal and turn on the reflexes needed to feed. So babies do not move volitionally, they move reflexively. So the stepping reflex massages the uterus as it brings the baby up to the breast, right? The spinal gallant, which helps the baby come up to the breast and turn back and forth. Hand to mouth babkin, all of these reflexes, rooting reflex, all these reflexes ensure latch, right? So we don't really need to do anything except provide the environment, which is the mother, the body of the mother, and the baby can do it because babies nurse, we don't. Right. They yeah. Right. And so when we provide that environment with an unmedicated baby, because medicated babies don't nurse the same way medicated babies do. So we have an unmedicated baby in that environment. We give them space. We give them time. We let them latch. That's what they're going to do. Right. But babies also, we, we, we do all of these things. Like we stick hats on them. We right. want that smell but we have them we what we bathe them so we take away the amniotic fluid that helps to guide them we take off the vernix which protects them from losing fluid body fluids so we do all of these things that undermine nature's amazing plan to make sure a baby survives Mm -hmm. and what's the most important part of that survival is that the baby cannot regulate itself the baby is regulated by the body of the mother right Mm -hmm. the mother's respiratory system the mother's heart rate the mother's exhale regulates the baby babies were people make this argument well the baby was in the womb and they feel really comforted when they're swaddled babies are not restricted from movement in the womb they can move their limbs and movement is how the brain maps the body this is so so new to me because that's all i heard swaddle your baby they're going to have the startled reflex they're going to wake up so you want to make sure The startle reflex helps babies nurse because what's the position in which a baby nurses? It's this, which is the startle reflex. So startle reflexes help babies nurse and they help babies to not die from SIDS. Babies need the startle reflex. It's protective. It's there for a reason. So by suppressing it, we delay its integration, Mm -hmm. which means that eventually babies are going to wake or the startle reflex is going to stay with them. And when you slam a door, they're going to do this when they're 35 years old. It needs to integrate and it integrates by doing it over and over and over until it's smaller and smaller and smaller and integrates. Mm -hmm. So it's really harmful to babies not to allow the startle reflex. It's meant to be there. It's Mm -hmm. meant to integrate. And what I'm seeing is delayed motorical development in children because we are suppressing the ability to map the body. The brain doesn't know a body part is there that doesn't move. The brain needs to map the body in order to develop postural stability, to become upright humans. So we are actually delaying motorical development by swaddling babies 
And by delaying their movement, by impeding their movement, putting them in swings, putting them in car seats, putting them in jumpers, putting them in everything that doesn't allow movement, babies need to move. Mm -hmm. However, baby wearing allows for movement because babies move with you. Right. right. So as you move, the baby moves. And as you move, because the baby isn't totally glued to your body, there's mobility there. The baby has to access their core. They have to find their stability. So we develop the core by baby wearing. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Because we don't baby wear anymore. We use tummy time to develop <laughs> the core. But I always say that a baby who cannot move volitionally, which is like under four months old, there's a word for them when you put them on the ground in the natural world and it's prey, P-R-E-Y. Mm -hmm. And so why would that naturally happen? We wouldn't put babies on the ground. Right. So clearly tummy time is an artificial construct. T babies love to be on the ground once they're old enough to get around for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's an artificial construct that replaces baby wearing. Right. So, so I encourage baby wearing in all my clients. So it sounds like as breastfeeding is crucial, Baby wearing is crucial. Why do pediatricians talk about tummy time, but they do not talk about baby wearing? Yeah, because baby wearing, yeah, what would that be? What would be the angle why they wouldn't want to promote that? So I think a lot of times the thing about the thing about birth and breastfeeding is that most humans experience it one way or another, whether it's themselves or their partners, right? Almost everyone other than having been born, which we all experience, but most people who are adults and who are in the healthcare field experience these two things. So everyone feels they're an expert on it because they've experienced it. We all extrapolate our personal opinion to expertise. Okay. So remember that pediatricians have no education in nutrition, breastfeeding, tongue tie, right. in normal infant sleep, really normal physiology is not a part of their education. And we want pediatricians to be able to identify illnesses. We want them to be able to recognize when a, when a child is sick, a baby is sick and act accordingly. So it's not that we don't want them to have that education because we do. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the rest of it, the sort of norm is not a part of the education. And when you add on their own personal experience, so much of what they, they tell parents is not science it's their own personal experience mm -hmm. writ large right so this is what i did so this is what you should do okay and so it has it plays a huge role unless you're a doctor who really chooses to become educated which some do mm -hmm. um some become very very knowledgeable and very very educated and become huge advocates that's for sure mm -hmm. but the average pediatrician does not have good information on these topics and these are all the topics that are part of normal daily life of children right how they're fed, how they sleep, how they're cared for on the day to day. And most of what you hear is going to be either secondhand, um, just any old advice, not, not grounded in any science or personal experience. Mm -hmm. So, okay. right. And so the other thing about baby wearing is that it kind of went out, right. When babies were not being nursed from the 50s, 60s, 70s, babies weren't being worn either. And if you remember when it kind of became a thing again, Dr. Sears, actually, the the elder Dr. Sears, kind okay. of really brought baby wearing back, but it kind of became a big thing when Baby Bjorn came on the market and and Hollywood stars started wearing Baby Bjorns. Okay. Baby Bjorns, you can't nurse in. They're not really a baby wearing device. They're not good for the hips and they plaster your baby to you. Mm -hmm. So nursing isn't really going to happen in them. Okay. That kind of thing that you wore a baby to like go for a walk mm -hmm. as opposed to wear a baby to live your life mm -hmm. it's a very 
idea. So a lot of people now who baby wear tell me, oh yeah, I carry my baby, but I never nurse in the carrier. You're, it's meant to be nursed in. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine not nursing in a carrier. It's how I nursed all the time. Mm-hmm. Because how do you get anything done if you're not nursing in a carrier? But <laughs> exactly. But it doesn't even occur to people that that's a thing to do because what they've seen are, you know, it's just a How convenient transport mechanism. Yes. yes. And if you are concerned, you know, of, you know, I'm going to be breastfeeding in public, people are going to be offended. I mean, the the baby wearing the carrier just gives you all the privacy. Your baby does what it needs to do, and then it goes to sleep, and you keep moving on with your life. But again... When I was, when I was, when I was running the peer counseling program at Hartford Hospital, um, a lot of our moms had to take buses. They didn't have cars. We gave free nursing bras, we gave free prom parentals, and we gave free baby slings to our clients because that was one of the ways that we could make it feel comfortable for them to be able to nurse. And I don't even like the term nursing in public because that shouldn't be a thing. That's like saying breathing in public. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, we've heard that too, so we won't go into that. (laughs) Right, right, right. But I did want to kind of address, you know, the other piece that you said, you know, that you still had issues. You had a home birth and there were still issues with breastfeeding, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, because I had tongue-tie babies that I didn't know. Right. Well, my daughter was tongue-tied. She wasn't released until she was 19 years old. So wow. I get it. Yeah, because, I mean, she's 30, going to be 31, and I, at that time, I didn't know that she was tied. So I nursed her for five years, but nursing was really challenging in many ways because of her ties, but I didn't know that was why until mm-hmm. she was, like, 13. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't understand the physiology of ties well enough to know it still needed to be released. So that was one of the things I was going to say is that we have the whole the whole other piece of this, which isn't just about the microbiome. It isn't just about, um, you know, the relationship. It's also about facial development. Mm-hmm. Humans are meant, are, are, I always say breastfeeding is the architect of the human airway, right? Mm-hmm. Our airway develops by how we're fed as an infant. So mm-hmm. infants who are fed with bottles, who have artificial nipples, who have pacifiers as their and I, I tell parents who leave, have to you go to work and feed a baby a bottle, you're not really creating much harm when you're still nursing in terms of oral development. Mm-hmm. You, you feed your baby how you have to feed your baby when you're away from your baby. Right. But if you can nurse your baby all of the time that you're with your baby, that's going to make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So oral development is really critical. And how those muscles are used in infancy will de- de- determine the development of the, uh, the face, the palate, the airway, and we don't talk about that. We think yeah. about tongue tie that allows a baby to nurse, but we don't think about what the cascade of that is. Mm-hmm. When a baby nurses functionally versus dysfunctionally, the development of the facial structure is so different. Mm-hmm. So what I what I talk about in terms of tongue tie is it's not just a matter of can the baby nurse, but can the baby feed functionally? Mm-hmm. So let's right. talk about, for people that don't know what tongue tie is, because I sure didn't, uh, what is tongue tie, how does it affect nursing and, um, and development, I guess, and how do you go about correcting, why is it so prevalent, and how do we go so about correcting it? There. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, so, <laughs> I know it's a lot. Right, so I only, you know, from the time that I have been in the field of lactation, which is now 33. 34 years I've known about tongue tie but what the I whole knew time was, I don't know but what I knew was the anterior to the tip of the tongue type of tongue tie okay. that's okay. all I knew so 
So I thought that's what a tongue, not that that isn't a tongue tie, but I didn't know anything else was a tongue tie when mm -hmm. I first started helping mothers breastfeed. So every once in a while, I'd get a baby like that. Tongue tied right to the tip of the tongue, send them to the ENT, they'd snip that little anterior tie. That's all I knew, right? So I thought that was, that I was doing my job, right? Mm -hmm. When I would do that. Mm -hmm. In 2005, Betty Carillas, who was a um, surgeon from New York, um, and Kathy Jenna, who's a lactation consultant, wrote a paper. It wasn't actually a paper. It was more of a uh, sort of an almost like a not an observation piece. Let's just say that um, about and sort of identifying the concept of posterior tongue tie, which many people have issues with the terminology. But if you think about the the attachment more posterior than anterior on the tongue, that's really what we mean, right? Okay. And that was the first time I had heard of it. I live in Connecticut. Dr. Curlis was in New York. I was very lucky about that. So I reached out to her and she became my mentor. So I learned from her what was happening. And she was running at the time. She was a brilliant woman. She was in her 70s and become a lactation consultant wow. in her 70s. Wow. Um, amazing person. And so she was doing ultrasounds. She would have babies come in, go get an ultrasound, come get their tongue tie release, go get another ultrasound. And you could literally see the change in the amount of milk being moved wow. by doing that. She was wow. the first person to ever do it, to identify it, to name it, all those things. So in 2007, six or seven, I can't remember, I had her come to Connecticut to teach about tongue tie. And she actually taught Dr. Cliff O'Callaghan, who's a pediatrician here, how to release ties. So Cliff and I went back to New York a couple times. We worked with a couple hundred babies together. And that's how we started releasing tongue ties in Connecticut. Uh, but there was so much more to learn, right? In terms of what do we, we're releasing these ties, but what's the sort of container for all mm -hmm. of this, right? And I'm you're you're releasing them because mothers are having trouble with breastfeeding. Is that the like number one reason people well, are getting? That get was the only reason at the time. And interestingly, Dr. Carillas, the first one she ever released, she did not see a tie. She said, "There's no tie here," because mm -hmm. she said she was, as I said, quite you know quite a, quite old in her seventies, and she became a doctor in the forties. And she said we released all the ties then because babies had to nurse, but they yeah. were anterior ties. She said we just went and did them. Mm -hmm. and so she remembered when it was normal to release ties for breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And so this mother said to her, I know my baby's tied. And she said, I just don't see it. And the mother convinced her. And that's the first time she ever did a posterior tie. The mother convinced her. Wow. So it was a mother who started this whole thing. And <laughs> of so, course. <laughs> exactly. And so the idea was that, yes, when mothers were having pain with primarily pain was a big factor, mm -hmm. right? But also poor weight gain. Um, what a lot of people didn't realize is my daughter was an example of a passive feeder babies who just go to feed at the tap let it pour in and don't feed functionally that was my daughter because mm -hmm. i was tandem nursing my son he was driving the supply and she was just taking it free. <laughs> yeah. um and so yeah so she was not a functional feeder but she grew beautifully because i was tandem nursing mm -hmm. um so that was, and then, you know, we started to see the mother's symptoms. Like I had mastitis six times with my daughter. That's a really common problem with tongue-tied babies. So those kinds of symptoms as well, not just pain, but mastitis, plug ducts, you know, those kind of poor weight gain, those things. Mm -hmm. So those were all kind of identified, but I was very fortunate that I also collaborated with a chiropractor and I've collaborated with her for 30 years. So as soon as I met Dr. Corrales, I dragged Dr. Valone into the picture and said, we need to do this together. And in fact, the first course which was a 
uh, integrative approach to tongue tie, the lactation consultant, body worker, and the surgeon, were, we did a court, we did in 2008 together, the three of us. So that was sort of the beginning of collaborating together mm -hmm. um, because no one was really involving body work up until then. Okay. So all of those babies that Dr. O'Callaghan released, which was the first paper written on posterior tongue tie, where he never acknowledged that all the babies that were my clients, which is more than half of them, had had body work. So what we started to do was prepare these babies for release mm -hmm. and then do the release and then do the body work afterwards. Now I'm much more comprehensive in how I manage. But so what tongue tie is to step back is we used to think it was a midline defect. I want to clarify for anyone who listens to this, it is not a midline defect. Oh, that's good to know. Okay, because I thought that's what it was. It is, yes, and that's what I thought initially too. It's actually a fold in the fascia during embryology where that fold of fascial tissue is just shorter and tighter than it would normally be. So we have frena throughout our bodies, right? We have seven areas in our mouths, our buccal areas, our upper and lower lip and our lingual under the tongue. But we also have frena in our brain, our genitals, our digestive systems. So they're just a little fold of fascia that allows a movable heart, if you will, to move just enough and not too much, right? Mm -hmm. So it allows the tongue to be stable, right? But also be mobile. So we don't actually know why there are are so many ties. Mm -hmm. I can tell you as a myofunctional therapist who works with children and adults, I see many, many adults who are needing tongue tie release. Many people oh. in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who are needing I probably need to check with you. <laughs> After so this, is, I'm making an appointment. <laughs> it isn't just these babies. It's not just these babies. It's also the adults. But we also have now a hundred years of not breastfeeding, which mm -hmm. has certainly had a huge impact epigenetically on us, right? Okay. Um, but what I what I think, and I, I also want to say this because you'll you'll find whole Facebook groups about MTHFR, which right? is a, a G. Yeah, right? we're familiar about, the, about MTHFR and tongue tie. I am the person who first suggested that relationship. And it wow. came about when I was taking Dr. Carillas home from that first time she came to Connecticut. And we were taught, we thought it was a midline defect. And we were talking about the things that affect nutritionally midline defects. Mm -hmm. So we talked about vitamin A, we talked about like nutrients that folate, of course. And then I talked to a friend of mine who's a nutritionist and she said, have you heard of him? This was 2006 or seven. Have you heard of MTHFR? And I said, no. And I went and looked into it. And I just kind of put it in the back of my mind. And then around 2008, I thought there's a correlation here. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a correlation here. I contacted Ben Lynch, who ran mthfr.net, uh, the naturopath, Ben Lynch. And I said, Ben, I'm having my babies tested back. This is back when 23andMe was doing the swabs for babies. Mm -hmm. I'm having all these babies tested and like 85, 90% are coming back with mutations in the mthfr gene. Do you think there's a connection? Mm -hmm. So he did some research and he actually did a talk at the first uh, International Affiliation of Tongue Tie Professionals Conference in 2012 on tongue tie and MTHFR. So, but we're not saying MTHFR mutations cause tongue ties, but people don't understand things in a global way. Mm -hmm. They tend to take one thing and run with it. MTHFR right. causes tongue ties. Mm -hmm. I have MTHFR. Well, I hope so because it's a gene that we all have. So people don't know what they're saying. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> right. And so it, what I think is that it is a methylation issue, right? Because methylation is a is a is dependent on environment. Mm -hmm. So it's a nutrient gene interaction, right? 
I think that impaired methylation in embryology is having an impact on neural crest migration. And neural crest cells form the palate, they form the face, they form part of the heart and the nervous system, part of the nervous system. And I suspect that neural crest migration is impaired in some way when methylation is impaired. So I think mm -hmm. that's the connection, but folate is not the only factor in methylation, right? Mm -hmm. And we also know that choline is significantly important in, to the midline. So we actually don't know the answer and people need to stop saying that they do because they don't. For me, mm -hmm. it was just a curiosity and a theory and a possibility. Mm -hmm. I do think they're connected in some way, but in a much more, but we don't know what that connection is. Um, but what we do know is that the human head is getting smaller. And it's been getting smaller for about the past 200 years, which means it is not evolutionary, it is epigenetic. Okay. So, and so environmental factors, primarily a grain-based diet as we became more agriculture, as agriculture became industrial, right? So first we became agricultural, then we became industrial. And so our diets changed to soft foods mm -hmm. as opposed to foods we had to chew. Mm -hmm. Right. So lack of chewing is a huge problem. And what do we do when babies are going to solids? We give them purees. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Chewing, they get purees. We give them sippy cups so they don't chew. They don't drink properly. They don't use those muscles correctly. And then we pro we move them on to processed industrial foods. And so the development of the jaw, development of the maxilla, which should be wide and the mandible, which should come forward, are highly dependent, entirely dependent on how we eat. Right. Wow. And so when babies the mandible comes forward and grows forward through breastfeeding the maxilla grows forward when the breast is pushed up against the maxilla so functional breastfeeding forms the face so so right? J jay leno was a breastfeeder <laughs> <laughs> and so and so that's that's what needs to be happening right are these is functional feeding needs to happen but as the head has become smaller narrower our wisdom teeth don't fit anymore we once right i had that problem teeth are now crooked palates are this high mm -hmm. so we say oh the tongue should reach the palate no tongue is going to reach a palate this high i don't care what you do yeah. so what we i believe that the reason we're suddenly having to release so many ties is because palates are so high so when palates were short lower uh, even a tongue that was tied could get to the palate. Mm -hmm. But when palates are so high, a tongue that's tied is never going to get there. Mm -hmm. And a tongue to the palate is like plugging in a circuit. It regulates the nervous system. It releases endorphins. Oh. So we are regulated when our tongue is to our palate. We are dysregulated when our tongue is, sits on the floor of our mouth. Mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so when the tongue sits on the floor of the mouth, the mouth is open. We become mouth breathers. We develop a long, narrow face. It's wholly dysfunctional and leads to, you know, sleep apnea, the breathing disordered sleep, all these other issues. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really critical how babies are fed, not just what they're fed, but how they're fed. And mm -hmm. that has been lost. That message has been lost in the last. Well, we never really had that message, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so true. So, so Jennifer, if if that kind of stems from breastfeeding, would what would the benefit be for these later in life people getting ties released? Well, if your tie in particular is impeding airway function, so for a lot of people, the tongue falls back into the airway at night because it doesn't stay up on the palate. Mm -hmm. So if that can be corrected, you can help a person to breathe better. You can help them to stop, to potentially not snore, open their airway. Um, for a lot of people, though, it's also tension because when the tongue is tied, there's tension throughout the whole body, the upper neck, the, the neck, 
the the occiput the chest this whole area because uh, and so we tend to do that's this me <laughs> right well i right so we tend to be in a in a in a, a toner flexus everything is kind of tight to the front and not to the back right mm -hmm. so we have poor posture um and so you and think about that that leads to digestive issues there are so many factors the um Oh my gosh, there's a muscle that I'm begins with a P that I'm just forgetting at the moment. Um, palatoglossus muscle, which is at the back of the tongue. So the tongue is a muscular organ, it's not right. a muscle, right? Mm -hmm. The palatoglossus muscle is innervated by the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is responsible for digestion, peristalsis. When the tongue is um, adhered to the floor of the mouth, that, that back part of the tongue doesn't move. So mm -hmm. we don't have that connection with the vagus nerve. So there are so many things impacted when a tongue is tied. Do you think there is some relationship with, you know, so many people, especially children uh, with hyperactivity, not being able to regulate themselves? There could be a fi fight or flight relationship with the tongue. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, a film that was made quite a few years ago called Finding Connor Deegan. Um, and that film was made by the um, AAPMD, the Association, Association of American Association of Physiological Medicine and Dentistry. And their goal is to educate about airway issues, sleep issues. Um, and they made this film about this young teenager who was really about to be institutionalized. His family could not manage him. The schools could not manage him. He was really out of control. Um, he was diagnosed with oppositional defiance disorder. Um, which his mom said she wished she had never had him diagnosed because his problem was he couldn't breathe and he couldn't sleep at night. Oh, that's they, my daughter. So, so and it, when they fixed those issues, he became a whole different kid. Is is tongue tie a big uh, treatment protocol in in sleep disorder? It's becoming more so. Okay. So there, it, it, it so a lot of people think just releasing the tongue is going to solve all their problems, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, that's they, what I was told. <laughs> That's because we get really hyper-focused on the, we don't tend to think process, right? We think procedure. I always say tongue tie release is a process, not a procedure. Okay. We can't think procedure. So for some people, if if this is your palate and we release your tongue, it's not going to hit your palate. It's not going <laughs> to yes. happen. So for a lot of people, especially children, um, where it's e easier to do expansion, expansion should come first. We should expand the palate then release the tongue so that now we have that contact, right? Okay. And that's what we, we, we did that, right? With the ALF? With Leo, with but the not device. with yeah. Tessa. Tessa had to be released because she had horrible... Well, what I'm not, I'm not saying you, you expand and don't release. I'm saying you expand mm -hmm. and then release. And then release, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So for a lot of kids, you want to expand first, and even adults. Mm -hmm. you what about babies? Well, babies expand when the breast does its job, right? Okay. okay. So we release the baby's tongue so that the breast can do its job. Right. So... Yeah, so that's why we want to do it with babies. Mm -hmm. We want to start there. Um, children still are very easy to 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 remodel, though. Mm -hmm. As people get older, um, sometimes they need jaw surgery. We have a client who just had jaw surgery. Sometimes they need uh, other kinds of expansion. I had my tongue tie released in 2010, but then I went and got an ALF and got some movement, and then had it redone, which was you know really should have been done that way the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to retrain. That's why myofunctional therapy is so important. Mm -hmm. You need to retrain those muscles because we're not going to just use them differently. The brain has never even mapped them. So we need to get the brain online to know that they're there. And we mm -hmm. also need body work because... In body you work, know, you fact, say craniosacral chiropractic. What are the... I'll be honest. I don't tend to re refer much for craniosacral therapy. Really? I, 
I'm trained in the Gillespie approach, cranial sacral fascial therapy. I'm also training in orthobionomy. So I love body work, but I tend to refer to either a pediatric chiropractor for talking babies or children mm -hmm. or an osteopath. Those are my tendencies. Um, I also love rolfing. Um, what is that? So it's uh, named after Ida Rolf. It's a soft tissue technique that I find to be very effective. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends on where, because my practice is global. I see clients all over the world. So it depends on who's in a community. So like there's a craniosacral therapist in California I refer to all the time. So it, just, mm -hmm. it does depend. But mm -hmm. I would say it's not usually my first choice because most people need more movement than a craniosacral therapist is skilled and trained to do. Okay. And because craniosacral therapy has such a wide range of training, you could take a weekend course and call yourself a craniosacral therapist right. for 20 years. But every chiropractor went to chiropractic school. Every osteopath went to osteopath. So there's, I find you're starting with a different baseline mm -hmm. when you're starting with some, every rolfer took the entire rolfing program. Okay. So it, it, that's why I tend not to go there first. Um, but body work is all of those things. Bowen therapy. There's so many different kinds of body work. Um, and okay. so you really want the person who understands how what's happening here is happening everywhere. Okay. Right. I always say what happens on the table has to translate to the breast if it's a baby. Okay. Right. If it doesn't translate to postural stability and function, I don't care what you're doing on the table. It's not working. Okay. Right. So, um, yeah. So body work has to be a part of it always. Mm -hmm. Um but anyway, so that's really, you know, the thing with tongue tie is that it's become very common for people to now know about it, mm -hmm. but everyone wants to just run and get the tie released, whether it's with right. a baby, with a child, with an adult, that's a very Yes, because uh, the, you know, we've been through the exercising, getting the children to follow through, or even as the baby, when my daughter was released, um, you know, having to do the stretches and having to do the exercises with the baby crying. It was so... Well, let me, can I say something about that? Of course, because, of course, please. Because that's where parents get very upset and afraid and stressed. And mm -hmm. I totally get it. My granddaughter was released when she was nine days old. I get it. Mm -hmm. But but better than 19. Right. right. Oh, or 40 um, or 44, which is my age. <laughs> yes. But what the thing with babies is that people often don't understand. It's sort of like, I, I keep saying it's a wild west out there. Mm -hmm. Like everybody just kind of makes up some kind of protocol. And I, I said this to one of my clients today, preparing her for her baby's release, the dentists and ENTs, rarely ever see the consequences of their work, yeah. meaning that they don't see how parents handle those weeks after the release, right? Mm -hmm. They release the baby, they give instructions. Many times parents don't follow their instructions. They don't know that. Mm -hmm. Many times parents follow other instructions they found on the internet where they ask 10,000 of their closest friends. Yes. <laughs> they, right? So th they don't know really the consequences. IBCLCs, if we're following as we should, know the consequences. They know when parents go, I can't do this. This is so stressful. It's not working. What I have found is that more is actually better in this case. And I almost would never say that. Reality is when you have a tongue tie release, you're trying to allow that wound to heal by secondary intention in a baby. Mm -hmm. Older people sometimes get stitches, but this is in a baby. And so you want it to heal open. If you do the wound care, I don't call them stretches. I call them elevations. Okay. If you do it every four hours, every six hours, you are tearing it open every time. 
if you do it at every feeding, like every two hours, you're just keeping it open. It's not painful. So actually more is better. And I learned that from adults. Hmm. Adults have to do it like hourly initially to Mm -hmm. make sure it stays open and it feels better. So I find that if you go in and you do it super quick and you get out, babies stop crying as soon as your hands are out of their mouth. That just means they were annoyed with you. They were not in pain. They were not tortured. But it's also important that mothers are doing um, oral exercises before the release, body work before the release, Mm -hmm. so that babies are used to having your hands in their mouth. And so we're starting to make changes. We're starting to map. We're starting to repattern before the release. Okay. You can't start afterwards. And so the wound care then is much more comfortable for parents who've already been working with their babies. Mm. So you really want a lactation consultant who knows how to do that whole process, who uses rhythmic movements to help babies integrate their reflexes and help babies soften their connective tissue. You want somebody that supports the process, not somebody who just goes in and does a procedure. Okay. So I think that that, yeah. So I find my clients actually handle the wound care really, really well because they understand what the baby's experiencing, why we're doing it the way that we are. And they'll often say to me, I can't believe it. The baby doesn't even mind it. I can even do it in their sleep. Wow. Right? Why didn't it, I find you sooner? Well, we, I know we did the post-care. You're saying we didn't do the pre-care. I can't remember. Um, we were doing craniosacral, craniosacral since she was born, but we didn't know. Right. We actually didn't know she was tied until I took my kid, my oldest to the myofascial uh, therapist. And then she just happened to say, let me just take a look at your daughter. And she saw right away she was tied here, tongue was tied, buckles were tied. And then I was like, oh, no wonder she's always colicky. Breastfeeding was really painful. And I had no idea. So they just, just told me where to go. And I just... About- I want to say something about the buckles too, because there are a lot of people who say they don't matter. Mm-hmm. They matter so much. They matter so much. And what's so interesting is that in adults, they make all the difference in terms of releasing pain at the occiput. For a lot of people, I think they're the reason people stop having headaches. And they make all the difference for opening the clavicle, opening the sternum, opening everything here. And remember mm-hmm. what happens when we're born, right? Yes. We open probably. and we open our hearts, right? We open our our voices. So what happens when those never open? Mm. Energetically, what happens when that never opens? Right? Shut down, our right? voice isn't heard, our heart isn't heard. We need to open. So when I work with adults who are having tongue tie release, I use Bach flower remedies as part of the, the support for a lot of them because there's a huge emotional component to realizing that, oh my God, I spent 44 years with my body not being able to do this thing. It's a really big emotional process. Okay. Right? So we can't just go cut a tongue tie and think we, I say that it's like taking a marionette and cutting all the strings. Mm -hmm. Like everything that's held you up is suddenly gone. Mm -hmm. Your body has to first learn how to hold itself up in a different way. Okay. Right? So there's so many layers to that. Right? So it's more complicated than than people want it to be, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when we do it that way, when we do it with that full process of support, mm-hmm. we have such a different outcome. That's right? awesome. And from babies to adults. So so let's talk about that then. Let's just close it full circle. Otherwise, we can talk all night with you. I want to be respectful <laughs> of your time. But so... The question I wanted to ask you was, we're talking a lot about child development, right? So what are the key, should I say things or key things that we should be nurturing, I guess, 
preconception, post-conception, having the baby, right? What are the things that we need to watch for, that need to work through these days, right? Because we have more uh, toxic assaults in the environment and we have more, uh, you know, the epigenetic events are really causing a lot of, you know, developmental delays as we're talking the MTHFR mutation and other things. So what can we do? preconception, like mothers that want to have babies. And then once we have babies, what are the key things you believe that we could do to have healthy development of these babies? So I think that one of the things we have to eliminate is this idea that a little bit of something is fine. Because I sort of think about it this way. I always use the concept of a cup, you could use a bucket, but I use the concept of a cup, right? So we're born with our ancestral story from an energetic perspective, not only it's written in our genes, we know it's written in our genes and it's not just about mothers, it's about fathers too, right? Okay. So we know that for example, uh, food deprivation, caloric deprivation during a father's slow growth period has an impact for multiple generations on heart health. So it's it's mothers and fathers are important preconception right okay so we have to so i always say we're kind of born with the cup that we don't want to overflow because right. that's when we get in trouble right and so that cup has a certain amount of fullness based on potential genetic potential for potential problems right like having maybe you know c677 homozygous or you know comped homozygous or whatever it might be and then we have also maybe we have exposure to like i worked in a dark i was a photographer i exposed my kids to darkroom chemicals right so that's right. something that fills your cup right so maybe you lived in a house when you were a child that led paint or maybe your father smoked for 10 years of your life like mine did the first 10 years maybe you were formula fed all those things fill that cup for your kid mm -hmm. you don't want that cup to overflow mm -hmm. so i feel like certain things drain that cup a bit like breastfeeding like um a, you know, a healthy diet, like avoiding environmental toxins, like not living in a house with mold, all those kinds of things can reduce that a little bit, but other things overflow that cup. That's why when people say X, Y, Z causes whatever problem, mm -hmm. autism, for example, mm -hmm. it's such a simplistic idea. Mm -hmm. Something tips, something can overflow the cup, but it doesn't mean that thing in the, in and of itself would do that, or it would do it to everybody, mm -hmm. yeah. right? It's not, right. it's not that simple. So we have to remember that conception and birth are epigenetic events, right? We're rapidly, rapidly methylating at birth. So they, these are epigenetic events. And we're, what we need to remember is that we're talking about the exposome, right? The interaction between genes and environmental factors. Nutrition is an environmental factor, exposure to toxins. So ideally, both parents would work on detoxing exposures to things like heavy metals or mold and would also clean up their diets. What I see often are women who have been on birth control pills for years mm -hmm. going off the pill and getting pregnant. That was me. No one ever. So did anyone tell you when you went on the pill that birth control pills are supposed to be nutritionally supplemented because they deplete your body of basically all your major nutrients? Nope. No. Women do not replete their nutrients before getting pregnant. So that should happen. Like nutritional repletion of nutrients should happen. So we should take a sort of a wide angle lens and look at all of these factors and, and offer as much support 
as possible to our bodies before conceiving a baby. That's ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, During pregnancy, what I think is really critically missed also is that emotional part where I told you what I did with Leo, right? That part of it is really important. We don't tune in. We almost make fun of people for doing that. We almost like minimize the sort of spiritual aspect, if you want to call it that, of being pregnant and giving birth. But I feel like we should really amplify that aspect and support the 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 couple mm-hmm. in that in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but and and nutrition. What I've noticed too is that nutrition has gotten much worse in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Women see pregnancy as an opportunity to eat badly. Right. Yeah, it's like you're eating for two, you know. <laughs> Which you're not, by the way. Right. And, and the other thing is that a lot of women are experiencing severe morning sickness during pregnancy. I was. And that's, and that's a liver gallbladder problem, right? But if that's cleaned up beforehand, they're less likely to have that happen. So those kinds of issues need to be addressed as much as possible. And then nutrition during pregnancy should really be optimized, right? And then, you know, birth, I, you know, I don't, I don't, presume to tell women, I don't ever want to tell women how to live their lives or what choices to make. Mm -hmm. What I want is for women to have education so that the choices they make, they can feel that they were fully informed. If a mother wants to, you know, be induced for whatever reason, she should know all the risks of that, all the consequences and all the potential benefits for her. Informed consent. (laughs) Right. In every single way. Mm-hmm. Right. When I worked at the hospital that we had, there was this like slogan in the elevator about to something to like inform consent. And I said, what they really mean is we will inform you what we want you to do when you will consent to it. Right. right. That's what it, it doesn't really mean what we think it should mean. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I want to be really clear that when I say these would be the things that we n- would benefit mothers and babies. Right. I am also realistic about the reality of finances, mm-hmm. of the fact that women do not have leave in this country, right. of the fact that fathers do not have leave in this country, that women are pumping when they work at a gas station. I mean, we I'm, there's a reality for what people have to deal with. So, I want to be re- I want to be real that people's real lives, the sort of the microcosm, doesn't always match the macrocosm, mm-hmm. right? Right. And, and we should be, we should have the political will to change that, right? Yeah. To make that different. Um, but having said that, if people are able to, to, and a lot of these choices people can make, right? They can replete their nutrients, for example. They can take the time between going off the pill, for example, and getting pregnant. They can change their diet and optimize their nutrient dense foods versus their, you know, industrial foods. Um, dads can do the same thing. I feel like it really weighs heavily on mothers and it's really unfair um, that dads don't, don't take that role. Um, they can educate themselves about birth and find support to birth without medication. They can, you know, make the decision to breastfeed and approach breastfeeding from a, just sort of a different paradigm, right? As opposed to thinking about it as one food choice or another, but considering the bigger picture of how breastfeeding impacts the entire development of their child and their relationship with their child. So there's just a different way of looking at things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then once the baby is born, it's not just about breastfeeding, right? It's about, how, I, it makes me so sad when I see mothers 
pour everything into succeeding with breastfeeding. Like they really work at it. They use a supplementer at the breast. They, you know, hire lactation, they get body work, they get a tongue tie release, and then they progress to industrial foods with their kids. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm they, done. Now I'm just going into the norm. Yeah. Right. And it's, I, and it's really hard. It's super hard because the pressure to feed your kids junk is so huge. It is so huge. It is so normalized, but it is so detrimental. And especially during that period when kids structure is developing, their anatomy is developing, right? Their brains are growing. Those first three years are so super critical. It's not just the first six months, for example. Yeah, I even heard that the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics now is suggesting introduction of solids at at three months now or something like that. It's like they lower from six months to... I have not heard that at all. Mm -hmm. I have not heard that change. There was research done by industry, of course, arguing that solid foods introduced earlier prevent allergy. There's actually no indication that that's true. And we are seeing an epidemic of allergies. We are seeing an epidemic of eczema, of um, of digestive issues, of gut issues. That's one of my really huge passions is the fact that the infant gut has changed. Our, our pH has increased dramatically in the last 100 years, which means that babies cannot really manage pathogens because you need an acidic environment to keep pathogens at bay and it's becoming more alkaline. Mm-hmm. So the baby's first six months are meant for developing the immune system, the sense of self and other, right? And so that is so critical that the baby doesn't have an immune system that misfires all the time. Mm-hmm. When you introduce anything other than breast milk, you're asking the, the baby's gut to now pay attention to digestion. Breastfeeding alone allows the immune system to be the focus, but any other food diverts us to digestion, which means it changes the composition of our gut flora towards digestion. Mm-hmm. We don't want to do that before the immune system is fully developed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So introducing solids too early is going to do that, okay. right? So, and who eats who eats when they can't sit upright? When babies are not functionally able to sit up, they're not ready for solid foods, right? Right. And though, so that's usually between six and seven months, five to seven months that babies sit themselves up. I mean, mm-hmm. sit not propped. Right. Sit themselves, sit themselves up. up. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a sign of readiness for solids. It's a really critical one. Okay. And it gets ignored all the time. So how we feed our babies afterwards and it's not just feeding right we want kids to be outdoors we want them in the sun we want feet to the ground right we want kids to be in the natural world as much as possible and again i'm realistic there are people who live in new york city there are, <laughs> there, well, there are parks in new york city but there are places where getting to a park or a park itself might not be safe so again i'm realistic about what is available to all people mm-hmm. but what i'm saying is that even people who have access to these things don't realize how important they are. Mm-hmm. We've, we've made them so min- minimal in importance that kids are living on technology. They are not living outdoors. Yeah. Right. So, and movement is most critical to our development. It's mm-hmm. most critical to life. Mm-hmm. So if even people who are, have the access to these things are not, not doing it. Yeah. Right. So, so I think that that understanding though how important this is to the development of our children, it has to, we have to have these conversations because we're not mm-hmm. right. And so what ends up happening is social media comes in and says, "Well, but I can't do that." 
Yeah. Right. So a mother celebrates breastfeeding for a year and somebody says, well, what about the mother who can't breastfeed? Yeah, right? exactly. Uh -huh. so those converse, they make no sense when you think it through that kind of conversation it makes no sense. But what it does is it shuts down dialogue. It stops people from talking about these things. It stops people from talking about breastfeeding or even a home birth or a natural birth. You know, what yes. about the, the mothers that were not able to. So you right. shouldn't talk about your experience because you got to be sensitive to. And yet when somebody climbs Mount Everest, people don't say, what about the people who can't? Right? <laughs> I, mean, we don't, I love that. <laughs> I'm not Jackson Pollock. I mean, what about the people who can't be whatever? You know, I mean, I have an art degree, but I'm not Jackson Pollock. I mean, there, there are always going to be people who could do one thing and not do another thing. There are yeah. lots of things other people could do that I can't do mm -hmm. or haven't done or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. it, I think that the problem is it's really often not a can't it's a how do i say this because i don't think people are making the choice not to but they're not aware of how much their environment and culture has determined what they do yeah, yeah. right yeah. so they they. it's not that they're not wanting to it's not that they're not saying i want to breastfeed or i'm choosing to breastfeed or i'm going to put my effort into breastfeeding but they're not always aware of how much they've been um influenced let's mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. by the culture by media by i mean look at what happens every year during world breastfeeding week the media is flooded with negative stories about breastfeeding flooded. oh we don't watch <laughs> the media so, so i didn't even know that so that's good to watch really out for so much on tv though it's like you know articles mothers yeah. who wrote about why breastfeeding didn't work for them and blah, blah. nobody can write about why breastfeeding did work but you can sure write about why we it didn't. didn't yeah so, yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is that people need to somehow find a way to insulate themselves against that kind of propaganda. Mm -hmm. Come into their power, yeah. Yeah, so I guess, and that, and the other thing is that breastfeeding, breastfeeding and just parenting from your own center, never mind breastfeeding, I don't even care which, what you choose as long as choice is there. Parenting from your own center is incredibly empowering, but also confidence building. Yes, I want parents to feel confident. Like, I feel like that's my most important role. If I am interacting with a parent, I should leave them feeling more confident than they were before I interacted with them. Yeah, that's that is what we should all be doing is supporting parents and feeling confident. Mm -hmm. If we really want to care about mothers and babies in this culture, that's what we would care most about is their confidence. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Right? Yeah, amazing. So to finish it off with all this amazing wisdom, tell us where can people find you and how can they support your work? Um, so I, for, for, for professionals, ibclcmasterclass.com is where all of the courses are that I offer to professionals. Okay. Um, I haven't done a parent course in a long time. I used to do courses on gut health for mothers and babies. I'm going to revamp those at some point. Amazing. Um, I also did courses on uh, raising children holistically. Um, and those need to be revamped too, but it's just time. And then it's um, Jennifer Tao at holisticibclc.com is where people can find me for, you know, lactation or myofunctional therapy and you know i'm not the right lactation consultant for everybody mm -hmm. or okay. the right myofunctional therapist for everyone i definitely approach things holistically but the ibclcmasterclass.com website has a list of lactation consultants from around the world who have been trained 
in my courses to work with tongue tie as a process. And a lot of them have also taken my gut brain courses. So at least it's a good resource for lactation consultants who are really well trained. So people can find folks from, you know, pretty much uh, anywhere in the world at this point. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you, you've blown, you blown my mind. I'm actually, I was pretty quiet, but I was like, I think I'm the guy she's describing <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> You did a great job. Yeah, you did, yeah. You did what you could. But I mean, it would have been it would have been really nice to talk to you before I had children. So I'm gonna forward this interview to all my friends that are still having babies because it was there were many aha moments during this interview and I really appreciate you. I really appreciate what you do, supporting mothers, supporting babies. Um what an amazing work and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have thank you, Jennifer. Day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Don't go All right. Another fantastic interview. Fabi, anything stood out for you that uh, you mean, wanted to mention? Didn't... I know there was just so much. Yeah. I, as far as child development, there's something that, you know, it's been on my mind. I mean, all the challenges that we had with our babies and so much we've learned and there's so much yet to explore. And in that interview, I had several moments where I was like, oh, I had no idea about this. I had no idea about that. Even you know, having uh, a big gap between our kids and my third pregnancy basically being totally different. Our experience was totally different and we're still, we still struggle here and there. There's still lots to learn uh, as far as child development. So that was just such a great baseline for parents now, parents-to-be, parents with small children, you know, just this man, human beings are thinking about conceiving because I think that looking into all of those aspects she was talking about, is it going to transform the world and create a much stronger and better society in the future? Yeah. And I mean, you can just tell Jen knows what she's talking about. Yes. <laughs> I yes. love people like that. Yeah, you know. she was fantastic. All right. Well, that's another episode of the Collective Resistance Podcast. Follow us on Telegram at the Collective Resistance Podcast or Twitter at TCRP12. Fabi, what do you want to tell everybody? Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay curious.